Uh, I want to read to you guys from the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. But, I, but before I get in there, I, I kind of need to set this thing up a little bit. Um, because what I want to talk about for like the next 30 to, to, 30 to 40 minutes roughly is, uh, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm here to try and tell you that Jesus is not here to try and just simply make your life better. He actually wants to like utterly destroy your life. Like completely ruin it. You want to hear more? Um, grow, growing up for me, I was, when I was, uh, I grew up in a fairly pretty, uh, I grew up in Tacoma. I grew up in like a fairly uh, typical um, secular Pacific Northwestern household. Um, and when I was 10, my parents, my parents went through this, this nasty divorce, nasty divorce that had ripple effects through my childhood. Um, and, and what ended up happening when it, between the ages of 11 and 17, I went through this major crisis, just a major crisis in my life known as puberty. Um, it was just bad on every level, um, bodily, but also on an identity level. Um, I started asking these questions like, what's like, why am I here? What's my purpose? Um, is there any meaning in any of this at all? And I just remember, I, even when I was like 13, I was asking just these crazy questions of like, why am I, why do I even exist? And I remember even going into high school and not even really wanting to be alive anymore. I was like, what... Like, why is this, like, why, what, what even is this? And I, I thought, um, I didn't really have much hope. And I came down to college hoping that I would get, that I would get some answers. Um, and when I, when I got down to college, there was this, I, 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 was, I was really into, like, pushing people away that were trying to get close. Um, I was really depressed. I was really anxious. Um, I was really into the party scene to try and kind of cope with, with the whole thing. Um, but there was this weird moment. I still remember it. There was this weird moment in my, uh, in my apartment when I was 19, and I didn't really have furniture, so I was sitting in like a folding chair, um, and it was like at night, and I was pretty much kind of at the wit's end of myself. And I, and, but what was weird is I, I can, I'm pretty sure I had this encounter with Jesus, um, it wasn't like one of those weird encounters where like some, where it's like Jesus like appeared through the mist and like he was like, I love you, you're the chosen one, follow me. It wasn't like anything like, not a crazy story like that. It was more just, I couldn't get these images out of my head of these people at my university who were trying to share Jesus with me. Um, and I kept pushing them away. I was like, you guys are weird. I don't know if you guys know this, but Christians are very weird. They're weird people. So just, just know that. Um, you guys are weird. If you were a Christian in here, you are weird. Um, and I just kept pushing the people away, like, no, you're weird. I don't want to talk to you. But I couldn't get there. I couldn't get them out of my head that night. And so I had this old Bible sitting on my bookshelf and I kind of just, I didn't really, I never really read out of things. So I kind of just grabbed it. Um, and I did this thing. I did this thing and people do this. I, f I found out people do this. Um, I, 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 they, they do this thing where I sat down and I said to God, with my Bible in my folding chair, I said, God, I'm going to open this book. And if you want to speak through me, I don't know what you're going to say. Now is your time to do so. And I just opened to a random place in the Bible. And I spent the next 30 to 45 minutes and I read through the entire book of Song of Solomon. <laughs> Which if you didn't know is not the most ideal place to start reading your Bible for the first time. Um, if you have never read out of this, um, just imagine your head, 19-year-old Bradley, 
sitting in his folding chair at night in his apartment alone. And this isn't even the worst verse. I picked a, I just pulled a verse. This isn't even the worst one. And it's, and just remember, just, I, I'm like, I'm like, Jesus is like going to talk to me. And it's just this, may your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine. The fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. And so I sort of just kind of, after that, I sort of kind of just closed the thing. <laughs> and I was like, Jesus, that was weird. And I swear I did this. I did this. I, I, I said to God, looking at my Bible, God, I'm going to give you one more try. And I opened my Bible and I opened to the Sermon on the Mount. And towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount is this passage that I want to read with y'all tonight. Um, chapter 7 starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall to the foundation of the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So I read that when I was 19 in a folding chair in my apartment. And that moment for me was such a pivotal moment in my life. I started going to church after that. I started reading my Bible. I started, I started praying. I did this thing, I did this weird thing, you pray. And then I started like amending, mending these relationships that I had with people. That moment was such a major moment for me. And I've been following Jesus for a little bit now. And I can say that Jesus did not take my old life, insert himself, and then just make it better. What he did is he took that old life and replaced it with true life. Well, before I was 19, I thought I had life. But he took that life away from me and he gave me true life. And this passage that we just read, I was met with this big question pretty early on. And I think this is really important for some of us who have been following either Jesus for a, a very long time or have maybe never followed, they're considering it. And it was this question, I was met with this. Is Jesus the way to life or just another way of living? Does he actually give us true life or is he just another kind of lifestyle choice for us? Are we, are we allowing him to change the very essence of our being or is he just a good idea sometimes? We've been looking at these last couple of weeks. If you haven't been here, um, we've been looking at who, the, who is this Jesus guy? Who is this guy? Was he just a good teacher? Was he a smart person or a smart person? Was he a king or just a part of a larger narrative and just played a little bit of a role in it? Who, who is he? And for some of us, we've been getting to know him for quite a while. And for some of us, we're just starting to get to know him, but I actually kind of want to flip this question around tonight. 
I want to ask if you are allowing Jesus to get to know you. Not who is Jesus, are you allowing him to get to know you? And here's what I mean. The passage um, that we just read kind of explores that concept. Um, This passage, um, a lot of people, they read this passage and it's like a spicy passage for a lot of people. It's like a scary passage. People get really, really worried about it. Um, Jesus, he kind of pops off in this passage. You'll notice he kind of, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, for two chapters before, this is how he ends it. Jesus has, for two whole chapters before this, laid out the ethical framework of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He talks about all the big things that, that, that he thinks about when, when he thinks about the kingdom of God. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, he has a section where he says, and there's gonna be all these people that say, Lord, Lord, but he says, I don't know you. And then he follows it up with a story about like these two guys who like build a house, who build, they build these houses for themselves. And you could say that this Sermon on the Mount is, is the most influential ethical statement in the history of humanity. It has been coined that. One could say that the Sermon on the Mount had more effect on the world's understanding of what it means to be a spiritual person. What it means to be loving, caring, how to live ethically. That the whole Sermon on, and that whole sermon on the Mount ends with Jesus saying, and yet there's gonna be all these people who say, hey, God, I knew you. Like, Lord, Lord, what's, what? here, here we are. And he will look at them and he'll say, I don't know you. Now, I don't know about you, that seems kind of just like a bummer way to end a sermon. Because the sermon is just like amazing and the ethical treatment that Jesus gives the world, but it ends with, and it says, there's gonna be all these people in the end who are gonna say, Lord, Lord, but I will say, I never knew you. Why would Jesus give this kind of ending to such an amazing sermon? And it turns out, this is why Jesus had an agenda. Jesus had a big agenda. And the awesome, you know what the cool thing about Jesus is? You never have to guess what his agenda is. He's gonna be, he makes it really clear. And Jesus here says, in essence, that there are gonna be all these people who are going to hear what Jesus had to say and they're going to hear it, but they're not gonna let it change them. And when you hear it and you don't do anything with it, there's a problem. When you hear it and don't do it, you're not really hearing what Jesus is inviting you, uh, what, what he's inviting his followers to do. Like, let me, let me illustrate this. How many of y'all listen to podcasts? How many listen to more than two podcasts? I wanna, I wanna see them up high. More than three. More than four. Okay, who's four? Raise your hand if you're four. Oh no, three. We got some informed people in here. Right, okay, raise your hand if you just generally listened to, a, you've listened to a podcast in, recently. Okay, a lot of us. Okay, we, we like our podcasts, right? Some of, you might have, some of you might have had this experience with your podcast. You love putting your earbuds in. You like tuning out the world. You love being just kind of all alone. Um, you just want to listen to an old NPR episode or like, or, or like a Crime Junkies episode or, or maybe like a personality pon- podcast or a sermon podcast. And you, and you love listening to podcasts. And that, let's, just say, let's just say, for example, this has certainly never happened to me. You're just driving your car and you are listening to the most incredible, mind-blowing podcast on forgiveness that you've ever heard of. And you're just listening and you're just in your own world and no one is bugging you and, and you're just loving it and your mind is like exploding every minute. Like, dude, I never knew this about forgiveness. And then let's just say, for example, some dude just like blows through a stop sign and just like inserts their life into yours. Now, of course, this has never happened to me. 
You're just listening to your podcast on forgiveness. Someone just blows through the stop sign, nearly totals your car. And let's just say, for example, the guy rolls down his window and he's like apologizing. And let's just say, for example, you turn off your podcast and you throw out all the information on forgiveness that you just listened to and you kind of just like yell at the guy. And then you look at yourself and you go, wow, I'm literally doing the opposite of what this podcast is blowing my mind with. I'm sure this never happened to you. It's never happened to me. But I'm telling the story because there's actually, I was, I was looking this up, there's actually this whole new genre out there um, of knowledge that, I, that I've heard, um, be, and it's being called infotainment, which is information. We love it. We love our podcast. We love absorbing the information. But at the end of the day, we're not going to really do anything with it. We're just sort of listening to it, not necessarily to be transformed. We're listening to it to not necessarily to be different. And in fact, in listening to the infotainment, we often embody the opposite of what that information is telling us to do. And of course, what essentially infotainment is, essentially is you're just living a very detached relationship to the information that you're receiving. It's saying, I want to be entertained by information, but I don't want to actually like want it to allow me to change at all. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying there is a problem with. And this is the problem. There is a whole genre of people who, follow, who, who claim to follow Jesus, who love to sit around for his sermons. The problem is that they just don't want to do what, what he asked them to do. It's not really going to change them. And in fact, Jesus has this phrase that he says, he says, there's going to be all these people who say, Lord, Lord. I will say to them, I never knew them. Now, one of the things, when I, when I read that for the first time, I was, very, I was a very confused new Jesus follower. And I was like, why, why do people say Lord, Lord? Like, why like his name twice? Like, why Lord, Lord? And it turns out, um, it turns out the Bible, what's, what, what's the important thing? What's the importance of saying Lord, Lord? And the Bible, when you read through it, there's only like 15 times where someone says someone's name two times. Uh, for example, in Genesis 22, Abraham, he's on Mount Moriah. He's about to sacrifice his son Isaac to God. And the angels, an angel says to him, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay your hands on him. Or when we get to Moses, he's at the burning bush and God says to him, Moses, Moses. Or in 1 Samuel 3, Samuel's like sleeping and God like wakes him up and says, Samuel, Samuel. Or you can go to the New Testament. Jesus, when he's talking to Martha, he, he says, Martha, Martha. And we could go on, but what is the importance of saying someone's name Twice, you say that in the context of Eugene, that would be weird. Zach, Zach, thanks for leading worship tonight. Jazz, Jazz, thanks for ordering the pizza. Caden, Caden, cool hat, my guy. That would be weird. Why two times? Well, in the Bible, when you said someone's name two times, uh, it, 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 it means uh, you would be saying you, had a, you were intimate with that person that you had a sense of relationship that you didn't have with just random people. So when God does that with Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Martha, and so on, he, he's saying he does that with people he's intimate with. When Jesus says, my God, my God, to his father, he says that because he has intimacy with his father. And Jesus says that in the last days, there will be people that come to him and they will say, Lord, Lord, presuming intimacy, presuming a sense of depth, of relationship, and he will look at them and say, but I don't know you. you haven't, you've, you've really done a good job of getting to know me, but you, ha you haven't done a great job of let, allowing me to get to know you. You haven't let me change you. Intimacy was assumed. 
You thought you were intimate, but Jesus says at the end of the day, that's not the kind of intimacy that he's after. And it's really interesting. There's actually a really great book by this guy named C.S. Lewis. He wrote this book called The Great Divorce. I mean, in this book, he gives this allegory. Sorry, this is going to be kind of, we'll see how this goes. Um, He gives this allegory about hell. It's a terrifying read, like psychologically terrifying. Um, Because he he describes this as a place where no one is intimate with God. Um, he, describes, he describes it in three ways. He says, first, he says, it's a place where everybody is constantly getting away from each other. Everybody is getting further and further away. There's, there's a sense of people not loving each other. People are isolating from each other, not knowing each other. And the second thing that he, that he describes is that hell is a place where everyone's just like blaming each other for stuff. Everyone's blaming each other for everything. And the third thing he says and it's really interesting. He says, it's a place where everybody eventually gets what they wanted. And it's a wild picture because it's a place where your deepest desires actually become reality, but it's a place where everyone's getting further and further away from everybody and everyone's blaming each other. And I don't know, I don't know if Lewis is describing hell or our current world today. I don't know. But I can say this that hell is a place where all intimacy is lost. Are you with me? Okay, thank you. You compare that to the book of Revelation. Another touchy subject. The book of Revelation, but there's an amazing chapter where it talks about the new heavens and new earth. And you contrast contrast that description with Revelation. It says, this, this is a place where everyone is together. We're all together. And, they're, and we're worshiping. They're together in relationship. They're intimate. They're coming together. And that secondly, there are no tears. There is no blaming. There is only grace. No one is pointing fingers at each other. There's no tears. And, the, and in the middle of all of it, God is being worshiped. And I guess the question is, at the end of the day, I wonder for us today, <clears throat> do we want that? Like, do we, do we want to have that intimacy with God? And even some of us in here might be saying, I don't know if I want that. And I think it is important to name that tonight. Because if you, if you are that person in here and you're saying, I don't even, like, maybe you've been hurt by a person who has claimed to be intimate with Jesus. Maybe you have been hurt by a church that claims to follow Jesus. And we're in here and we don't even know if we want that. But let me just say, I want to say to you that there is power in even saying, I want to want that. I want to want to be intimate with Jesus. It's like it says in the Bible, there's this guy that says, God, help me in my unbelief. Like, I think I believe, but but like, help me with that. I really want to. And so Jesus says in the last day that there will be people who come to him assuming intimacy, but have failed to do the thing that he asked them to do. And that was to do what he actually said to do and actually let it transform them, actually change every aspect of of them. We might have gotten all the tattoos. We might have memorized all the Bible verses that show we're intimate with him, but never have actually entered into practicing intimacy with him. And I read this text. I was preparing this text this last week and I'll tell y'all, it was like disturbing to me. It like terrified me. It doesn't terrify me because I think God is like being mean. It it terrifies me because I have to ask the question, am I treating Jesus like infotainment? Is he just a good thing to consider sometimes? Is he just fun to listen to sometimes? 
Or do I actually want to do what he wants? Do I actually want to be transformed and allow Jesus to change me? What I love about this, it's a scary passage, but what I love is that like the, the, the passage after this, which if you read, if you've ever seen um, a scroll um, of, the, of, the New, of New Testament books, there's no like verse, verse or chapters. So like it is very intentional that Jesus puts this parable right after this. He gives this parable. He says there's these two guys. This is an illustration of what he means in the passage before. We were just talking about like, there's gonna be all these people and I'm gonna say, I never knew you. He says, he says let me explain. There's like these two guys. There's a guy who builds his house on a rock and there's a guy who builds his house on some sand. And he contrasts these two people and how they lived. And he says that he wants us to live like one of them. He says, you want to be, you want to be intimate with me? I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you how to do it. I love it. And here's, the, here's a really important thing. If you want to be intimate with Jesus, Jesus will, he, will, he will tell you how to be intimate. He will. He says at the end of the day, our calling is to build our life on this rock. He gives us a parable that, honestly, this parable should call us to action. But, there are, but from this parable, there are three words, at least to me, from Jesus's, uh, from, from this story, it's, that stick out to me. There's three words that stick out to me. And the first one is this. In both instances where one guy builds his house on the rock and the other guy builds his house on, on, the, on the sand, in both instances, Jesus says that both of them get a bunch of rain. There's a storm for both of these people. And I want to talk about rain for a minute. Why does rain matter? And why is there rain in the story in the first place? Uh, well, rain matters in the context of when Jesus is talking, because I don't know if you know this, but it doesn't really rain a lot in the Middle East. Especially in ancient Israel, it doesn't rain It didn't rain hardly ever. And so when Jesus says there's going to be rain, the listeners of his day would have thought one of two things. One of them, they would be like, rain, that's awesome. It hasn't rained like 400 years. I'm like jazzed about the rain right now. Jesus, keep telling me about this rain. This is amazing. But not only was rain refreshing in, in in the ancient Middle Eastern world, it was also terrifying. So when, when Jesus says the rain is going to come, People, people, it was a terrifying idea. And, that, and that's because when the rain would come, you would very, very quickly find out if the foundation of your house was good or not. I was actually reading, because I don't have a life, I was reading about uh, ancient architecture in the Middle East when I was studying this parable. And I found out that when you would build a house at that time, you wouldn't build it in the winter, you would build it in the summer. But the problem with building it in the summer is the ground is like crazy hard. The ground in ancient Israel, even today, it's like crazy hard. It's super hard to move. And the problem with building on sand that's super hard is that you would have to dig and you, and you can't dig down to the bedrock is that you would, get, you would be tempted to think that this sand would be good enough to support the foundation of your home. And so instead of digging further down, you would go, that's probably fine. I'll, just, I'll leave it. It's probably good. Um, in the, and in the ancient world, if you just built it on sand and you thought it would be fine, when winter came, when the rain came, The minute it started raining, you would almost immediately know that what you built on was not good. And some of us might be inclined to think that the rain is the problem. The rain, the storm, that's the problem in this. But I don't think Jesus is saying that the rain is the problem. The Bible says that the just and the unjust experience the rain. The rain, it comes down on all of us. The rain is not the problem. I think what Jesus is trying to show us is that the rain actually reveals the problem. 
Because when it comes to the, when, it, when it comes, you know if the foundation hasn't worked. The rain is not the problem. Everyone gets the rain. Rain simply reveals the problem. There is probably, and, and this is just true, there is probably nothing else that clearly reveals the character of who we are than when, uh, that, than when stress, anxiety, and crises come into our life. There is probably nothing that reveals to us more about who we are than when the rain comes. The rain shows us how well the foundation of our lives are built. Everybody gets the rain. You cannot escape it. And the second word that sticks out to me is this word rock. Jesus talks about this guy who builds his house on a rock. One guy on the sand, one guy on, on a rock. And I want to get, te- we can get technical in here. Um, both sand and rock, they can be foundations. If you dig down deep enough and you get to the bedrock, you're building on a rock. I'm not saying sand is not a foundation. It just doesn't really do well with rain. And if you want to get really technical, you're either building on a rock or you're building on a million rocks and we just call that sand. And Jesus is saying something really clear here. You're either going to build your life on a million rocks or you're going to build your life on one big rock. And I think Jesus is inviting us into something very countercultural in our Western culture, which is not to build ourselves on these self-selected little rocks that we sort of make the foundation out of. And we actually choose to do something kind of crazy. And that is that we place our life and our trust ultimately on one rock. And that one rock becomes our ultimate identity. And by the way, like quick side note, you know how like Jesus was like a carpenter? You guys know that? This is important. Um, when, when, I, when I thought of Jesus as like being a carpenter, I pictured him like building like chairs a lot, like wooden chairs and like spending his days like sawing stuff, like sawing things. Um, there's only one problem w- with this is that in ancient Israel, you did not build anything with wood. Like at all. When we, think of, when we think of Jesus as a carpenter, we think of it as like carpentry today, but the reality is Jesus most likely worked with stones. And I think I can, I think I can say this um, because I think he probably didn't work with wood because every freaking time he gives a metaphor, it's with rocks, every time. Like, listen to this. How many times does Jesus use this image? Jesus says I am, that, that I am the stone the builders rejected. Jesus said that he's gonna build his new temple with precious stones. Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock. I think Jesus worked with stones. And, and, and what's funny is in that time, you didn't build homes with wood. You built them with like these massive stones and it took like forever to build them. So when, when he talks about building on a rock, like what is it? What is the metaphor here? Well, Paul, one of the writers of, of, of the New Testament um, actually tells us, he says, for no other foundation can be laid other than that which has already been laid and that foundation is Jesus. And the image here is that we are called to build on the one foundation that can handle anything and that foundation is Jesus. So he says rain, he says rock. And the third word that sticks out to me is this word Everyone. He says it a bunch of times. He says, everyone, anyone who builds their life on my words, everybody who puts my words into practice, everyone who does it, it will be a wise person. They will find their life. Not that they will just find another life. No, he says they will find their lives. 
their true lives. Not that it will work out perfectly. Don't think this means your life's going to work out perfectly by any means. That's not what it means. It means when you build your life on Jesus, when Jesus becomes your ultimate identity and we begin to let him shape us, you actually receive true life. A life that is not at the will of the circumstances that come your way. A true life, a withstanding life. And this word everyone, I'll tell y'all, it is a freeing word to me. It is so freeing to me. And why is it so freeing to me? It's because when Jesus said everyone, he really meant everyone. That every human being that, can, that comes into a community of Jesus followers, any human being that comes to Jesus, Jesus and says, I want to know you and become like you, God is in and with that person. Whether you've been going to church all your life or whether, whether you've just decided to talk to him for the first time, whether you've been faithful to him all your life or you've thrown it away and you're trying to figure it out again. Whether you, whether you look like this or whether you look like that. What, what, whether you think this way or whether you think that way. Whatever you, can, we, whatever you name it, we can go down all the lists that our culture has driven, but our task is to just invite people to get to know Jesus. And even the way we do church sometimes is so weird to me. Sometimes we think people need to like come and like become like us and then they can know Jesus. They need to be like us and then they can know Jesus. And they need to look and act like us, like us and then they can know Jesus. They need to look or be a certain way. And it's like so cringy to me because this, it, it perpetuates this idea that if we need to look a certain way or be, have a certain kind of personality in order for us to follow Jesus and be accepted in a community, it implies that the image that God created us in, this truth that we are created in his image, isn't enough. And guys, I, I genuinely think that is one of the worst sins that we can commit. We are coming to Jesus. Be transformed, receive his grace, and become like him. The church does not save a soul. Jesus is the one who died for the world. And we are told to bring forth his word, his life to others. You want intimacy with Jesus? You want life? Who's he telling you to become? What does he tell us to do? I don't want just your reflections on your reflections on the guy. What are his words? What does he tell us to do? And when we finally say, I'm going to build my life on that rock, that foundation on Jesus, he gives a freedom, a joy, a life with him that you cannot find anywhere. You will find a fulfillment that you could not find anywhere else. Jesus is not guilting us in this passage to force ourselves to follow him. No, he's actually grieving the idea that he is laying out his life on the table and offering himself and the freedom that we get from that and the love that he has for us is incomparable to anything else. And he just wants, he just wants us to have that. He says, just let me show you. Let me show you a life that can withstand the circumstances. It won't be easy, but you'll make it through. Let me show you a life where we get to know each other. Not that you just get to know me, but I get to know you. And when Jesus says that word, everyone, it means he's inviting everyone to that. And if Jesus is just a lifestyle choice for you, if he's just a supplement to your current life, I would like to, no, no wonder it's not fulfilling. You're not receiving a life from him. You're just like taking some information and just thinking it's a good idea sometimes. You're still building on the self-selected rocks that are at the mercy of the circumstances that come our way and then like kind of on Jesus. 
And, and here's the thing. Jesus isn't like a fan of like going halvesies with anyone when it comes to the foundation of our lives. The life that Jesus offers us is not a life of simply being entertained by his teachings and the way that he lived. The life that we receive from Jesus, the life that he freely offers us is that we get to know him and actually start to become like him and experience the freedom in him that is incomparable to anything else. He's not just part of our life, he is our life. When we decide to actually let Jesus take over, he, gives, he takes the old life that we had and he gives us a true life, a fulfilling life. He gives us a new story. You, you may have, def- there are some of you in here and you may have defined yourself. You may have given yourself a name. You may have written yourself off. You may have been labeled by others in a way that is not true to who you are. But when Jesus becomes your life, he pushes all of that to the, to the side and gives you a new and true name for you. And I don't even have the words to come close, that come close to even uh, describing how freeing that is. A while back, I talked about this before. Jesus does not require that we do all these things and become like a good enough person in order for him to love us. He does not affirm and love you after you have read your Bible enough. He doesn't affirm and love you after you've prayed to him. He doesn't affirm and love you after you've done all these things in his name. No, he, he loves you before you do anything. Anything. Can I get an amen to that? Receive the, I would just say, receive the free grace that he offers and then allow him to transform you. Hey, uh, can, we, can I have the band come back up? Zach, Zach. <laughs> um. This is this was a this is going to be a clunky conclusion for me because I was struggling all last week figuring out how am I gonna how am I gonna end this thing, how am I gonna end this teaching? Uh, I don't know. I'm just, but I had I had this sense as I as, as I'm ending it now. Um, I have this sense that there are people in here. There are people in here who who really don't have a sense of fulfillment right now. That there are people in here that don't really have much hope and they don't know what to do about it. And here's what I want to say to you. I want you to sit in that folding chair of your life. And I want Jesus to, I want you to hear Jesus say to you, "Hey, you're you're my child. I have a future for you. I have a life for you." And when you're willing to respond by faith and say yes to Jesus. What you're doing then is you're letting him ruin your life all over again. And what a gift that is. I want us to respond tonight. Um, if you need prayer, we have leaders in the back as we go into this time of worship, but I'm gonna pray for us and then, and then we're gonna worship Jesus together. Does that sound good?